from the Psych Hub Podcast Network. Join Marjorie Morrison and Patrick Kennedy on this episode of Future of Mental Health. So today's episode of the Future Mental Health is going to be a very new one for me because we haven't done one like this before, but I couldn't be any more excited because as I already mentioned, today we are going to talk to Craig Kramer. And I've actually known Craig for a few years now. I don't know him like well, well, but I know him in the space. We've been to many, many conferences at the same time. I've always been just a huge fan the work that he's done at J&J as mental health ambassador really truly has been groundbreaking and revolutionary. Now we are post-COVID and it's becoming more popular, but I can tell you that J&J led the way in this effort. The lives that Craig has touched along the way with his vulnerability and authenticity and openness has really created an environment for people everywhere to also feel open and to share. And that's what we consider true leadership, really leading by that real kind of true humbled spirit. And he continues to do that by the way he's showing up here on our podcast today with his son, as they're going to have, we're going to have a real open dialogue about mental health and how it shows up in families and what the future of mental health looks like for families, at least from a personal experience. First of all, I'm excited to have Craig here. And then equally as excited to get to know his son, Peter. Both of you, Craig and Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you, Marge. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. So I want to just kind of like start by maybe, Craig, help our learners get to know you a little bit. What inspires you to do the work that you do and just a little bit about kind of who you are and and what you bring to the table, how you got here. Well, I, like all of us, I have a mental health story myself and my family, um, but I, I had a 30-year career, career in law and government policy and uh, government affairs for my current employer, Johnson & Johnson. I spent many hours in rooms with Patrick Kennedy when he was a congressman, and I was a backbench staffer. He, I, I know he doesn't remember because we've talked about it, but been admiring of his leadership in, uh, on this issue and many others. And I was recruited to Johnson & Johnson because in Congress, I uh, helped negotiate international trade and other agreements with other countries. And Johnson & Johnson is a global company that was looking to start playing a bigger role in healthcare policymaking. And for most of my career here, I've worked on the health system reforms in places like China and India and Brazil, a little bit on the Obama Affordable Care Act in the United States. And working across all the therapeutic areas that Johnson & Johnson is involved in, cancer, diabetes, HIV, infant and child mortality, and on and on. And so uh, I've been privileged to work with health ministers and prime ministers and finance ministers and doctors and patients all over the planet. Really a, an unbelievable career for a kid from a small town in Michigan. And then in 2013, our family had a couple of mental health crises. Uh, we almost lost one family member to suicide. We lost another one to opiate overdose. This was before we knew we had an epidemic of opiate overdose in the United States. And a couple of years later, we temporarily lost uh, my son, Peter, who's here with us, to the criminal justice system. And that was a, a wake-up call, a series of wake-up calls. 
And I had just come off a multi-year effort to see what Johnson & Johnson could do to help solve the HIV epidemic. You know, at that time, HIV was a death sentence, and today it's a chronic illness, and, and soon it may be preventable through vaccines that Johnson & Johnson and others are working on. But HIV was very similar, to, I thought, to mental health because there, there was a lot of stigma around it. Uh, the science was not as advanced as it needed to be, and there were a lot of systemic issues of getting access. So I, I had this very naive thought that uh, we could do the same thing for mental health that we did for HIV. Patrick's made a, the good point that what we did for COVID ought to be possible for mental health. It's kind of a very sustained, focused, transformational approach to breaking down barriers and getting solutions to people quickly. You know, I, I was working closely with our CEO at the time, Alex Korsky, and uh, Johnson & Johnson continues to be one of the leading neuroscience pharmaceutical companies in the world and Husseini Manji was the head of our R&D at that time. And together, uh, actually Patrick Kennedy and David Satcher came, joined Husseini and me at a meeting with our CEO, Alex Horsky, where we pitched this idea of Johnson & Johnson doing something in mental health like we've done for HIV AIDS, providing a leadership platform and bringing stakeholders together around a really ambitious approach to transforming mental health care worldwide. And so that's what we've been trying to do the last couple of years. And in the midst of all that, uh, you know, our family has continued to struggle and, and, and try to navigate the healthcare system in the United States for our own loved ones. And uh, I've been an avid fan of your podcast and listening to all these you know, very powerful and smart friends of ours who are running health systems and companies and governments and just delighted to be part of this movement with you, Marjorie. And I thought that, you know, as you and I talked about this, there was one perspective that hasn't necessarily been surfaced as often as it should be, and that is, what's the future of mental health at the family level? And what does it look like today? And how do these discussions of reform uh, affect us today and hopefully in the future? Craig, thank you for your honesty with all of that, because you know, as well as I know, as well as most people know, your your stories are are very common. So many, many, many people struggle with similar issues, and yet there's so much stigma involved. I would love for you to share a little bit about that and about Peter. Absolutely. Well, when we first confronted this, we did, you know, we did what all parents would do. We took our kids to the pediatrician. You know, looking back, that was our first major mistake. As you and your listeners know, pediatricians and primary care doctors in the United States receive very little training in mental health. Through good intentions, they offered us what we thought were sound solutions that ended up being really just uh, kicking the can down the road and allowing the disease to progress and get deeper and more entrenched. And then because care is not integrated between primary and, and, and specialty psychiatric or psychological care, you are sent out into the wilderness. And where we lived in New Jersey, it was literally in the middle of the woods. You know, it was a place where nobody could be seen coming or going. Um, and it wasn't connected back to your primary care doctor. There was no coordination of care. There's really no roadmap for how to choose among the many flavors of mental health care. In contrast with cancer, my, my dad just celebrated his fifth anniversary of being cancer-free from an episode he had five years ago. And, you know, we knew on day one, five years ago, what his five-year chances of success were. And it wouldn't matter what kind of cancer he had. The data has been collected. All of the, the interventions have been tested over and over and over again. In contrast with mental health, where 
you know, you can go to 10 different providers and get 10 different diagnoses and 10 different uh, offerings of solutions, very few of which have been really subject to rigorous evidence-based testing over time. And so it's a, you know, as parents and as, as patients, it's a, you really just trial and error over and over again. At some point, you start to get fatigued because you're telling this new, the provider number 12, you have to tell your whole story again, and, and you still don't know whether this person can help you out. You're also dragging up traumas that you've been through and having to relive those. And so that's a little bit of our, our journey. Um, and you know, I think that's partly why stigma is so entrenched in mental health is, is the illness itself it comes along with stigma. But then when you go out and you find out that there's really no solution that, that's readily available for you, you ask yourself, well, why am I doing this? Or why am I letting people know I have this problem? Because they're all going to look at me and say, well, I'm glad I'm not, I'm not that person because they're never going to get better. Um, and I might here uh, maybe turn this over to Peter to talk about his journey and how that fits into what I've been talking about and how he experienced that. Before we go to Peter, I'm curious as a parent, and I, I can, you know, can only imagine what that was like, but how did that feel for you as a parent? I mean, did you feel, what were some of those each time that you went, the strain and the, you know, the feeling helpless? Well, it was exhausting. And um, we now do a lot of work with our employees at Johnson & Johnson and, and with other companies that are on the same journey. And, you know, we've learned about this term presenteeism. You know, I, every night I went to sleep for many years, I, I didn't know if my children were going were to be alive in the morning or my family members. And, and then I was obsessing about, can I find that needle in a haystack that has the right solution here? And um, again, without, with very little uh, guidebooks on how to find these people. At, at times, desperate, but, you know, I think in, in, in a lot of ways, I was the last person to help you know, who, who could help our family. Um, other people didn't have the, the, the same insights or information or, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty resilient person. So, I, you know, people look to me to kind of to pick up the pieces when they need to be picked up. So I, desperation was not an option for me, really. It was, um, um, but it was exhaustion. And, and for that reason, I didn't always uh, perform at 100% in, in trying, to, trying to solve the problems that we had. I mean, Certainly not perfect in any way, and made a lot of mistakes and dropped the ball a lot of the time. There were definitely days and, and weeks and months where I'd be at work and I was not thinking about work. Let me tell you, I was not focused on what was happening there because I had I had more important things, frankly, that I was worried about and I was spending time on. I really appreciate your honesty, and I I know that our listeners too can can relate. I mean, when we're are struggling, and so many times too, we don't realize it while we're in it. We realize it after when we look back and think, "Well, that was that was a really tough time." Peter, welcome. Hello. It's great to have you. Tell us a little bit about you. So I'm Craig's youngest son, youngest child. I would say my mental health journey started before I realized it. I remember I was sent to a therapist when I was around 10 or 11, and everything kind of culminated in college. I had experienced some traumatic events in my life and sort of thought that if I could just remain sort of jovial and a happy version of myself, that would be enough to deal with it. 
not knowing what was building up behind the scenes. And so I was trying to cope and just things were like falling apart in my life. I was fortunate enough to be part of a national championship soccer team at Tufts. But if you look at my life a month later, I was arrested, which I attribute to just the culmination of unhealthy behaviors, not dealing with the trauma. What happened was a real wake-up call for me. And I had this moment of clarity where it was either I continued to do nothing and my life probably stays the same, or I try whatever I can try to make myself better. And luckily, I, that's the choice that I made. I chose very hard self-reflection, um, started to go to therapy. I found the therapist that I would go to now if I were to have any problems. Yeah, I took about five years off from school after getting arrested just to work at restaurants and figure out what I wanted to do. And then I decided that I would like to go back to school. And I started studying communications. I thought, um, and this is kind of ironic, that I would like produce my own podcast or become like a media person. And then along that journey, I had the opportunity to like introduce my father at a he won an award for a nonprofit for raising a bunch of money. And writing my two-minute introduction, I ended up talking a lot about myself and my own personal journey. Um, and the one of the co-founders of the nonprofit like came up to me and expressed like how grateful she was that I shared my story. And it didn't feel like that in the moment, but upon reflection, I was like, that felt really good. And maybe this is something that I want to pursue. So I pivoted from communications to psychology. And I completed my undergrad extremely successfully. I was accepted into a PsyD program at the University of Denver, which was a huge accomplishment for me. And now like my whole professional and just general life goals are to help other people and hopefully become a licensed therapist someday. Amazing. That's a great story. I'd love to hear about that five years. That's a long time. And I think so many of us can relate to needing to take a pause. and go inward and work on ourselves. It sounds like you hit a fork in the road. I'd love to learn more about what made you, what, what, what prompted those decisions? You know, so many people have been there and, you know, many people have a story of they kept choosing the wrong path, but it sounds like you somehow kind of knew. Can you share a little bit about what it was like at that time? Sure. Sure. I mean, to be completely frank, the choice to step away from school is not my own. Um, and the choice to like work the certain jobs that I had were out of necessity for like having a job during probation and all of that. And I would say, I don't think like it was a straight line after I got arrested. I would love to say that and love to be like, my life changed overnight. And I've been such a great person since then, but it took a lot of just self-reflection humility. I think I learned just so much about myself and the way that I like behave when I'm stressed or anxious, how I like self-sabotage because it might've been the easier route for me at the time. Uh, but I remember I was working in the restaurant industry and I sort of like, I made my way from literally like cutting like onions at Chipotle in the back to becoming a captain at a fine dining restaurant. And that was like, that was a linear, linear trajectory where I just kept stepping up and moving up in that world. And I like had made it to 
the relative like peak or pinnacle of that industry. And then I had a whiteboard in my room that said, you have to quit your job. You are not happy. I had to write that down because I would feel that way when I got home and then I would go to work and like interact with my friends and it would be, you know, enough to get by. But I knew that like this feeling that I had before of lack of purpose and lack of meaning that really like drug me down to the depths of whatever was going on with me, that feeling was still there, but it was more of like uh, having dealt with a lot of the things that were holding me back. It was more of like a calling and I felt more hope towards achieving that goal, I guess, as opposed to like this dread of not having those things in line. So those years were just a great opportunity to step away from like the pressure of school that is kind of like this flowing river that never stops. And once you step out, you have to like wait a certain amount of time to step back in. Working at restaurants, I had like the freedom to learn the hard way and not feel so bad about it. I had this like very real clarity when stepping back into school that like there was something that I could work to. And at first it was like the, you know, audio and video production thing. But once it was psychology, like the path seemed very clear. And I, I don't think I would have had that clarity without the five years stint in restaurants. How did you feel about your family and your parents and during that time? Up until that point, I had, I think my dad can attest to this too. Our family was very poor at like real communication. We're good at like talking about when, what might need to be done, like apply to jobs or apply to school and like do well in those things. But in terms of like how we're feeling and dealing with that, we were not very good at that. I think there's two things that come to mind. One was my dad was like a very point of the very big point of contention in my life to be honest he was somebody the somebody that I always admired but my like expectations for my parents should be versus who they actually were caused a lot of frustration and angst when in therapy I just learned to like my dad has always been my dad my dad has like the biggest heart everything that he's done is like we're is out of the best of intentions And sometimes maybe he doesn't communicate it that well, or he'll say something where I'm like, why would you say that? And then he's just like, I don't know. What did I say? So it's, it's not out of like deliberate, anything deliberate and sort of managing my expectations around who my dad is and who my mom is. And that to some degree, they're just children who are raised by their own parents who were then raised by their own parents. And they're just trying to do the best to like make things better. Um, And since like having that revelation, like my dad and uh, my relationship has just really, really gotten stronger. I had the opportunity to speak at his, his wedding recently. And like, it was, it was just awesome to appreciate everything that he's done for me and our family since like all these hard times. Uh, And the second thing, our family went to about, I want to say it was like a 12 hour family therapy session. Whoa. It was in response to something pretty specific, but... At what stage was this in your the storyline you've told us? This was probably like three or four years into like my five-year sabbatical, if you will. And, you know, we had very difficult conversations. I definitely cried a bunch and like felt the need to stand up for certain things. And that day, like, 
just kickstarted everybody being more proactive and positive. Like, what can I do to help you? Not like what is going on and why are things going wrong? Part of what I hope for just everybody is that like we can be proactive and not have to respond to like tragedy because I feel like that's such a common way for families to get into like this space is a response to tragedy. And sometimes those things are like, we've been so fortunate that most of what has happened to our family can be redeemed within our immediate family. We haven't lost anybody. So I would hope that people can have like the comfortability and the freedom to have these discussions within their own families. It's such a great, such an important, great point. It's interesting sometimes I think about this and I'm going to, you know, associate it to running a company because I think it's sort of the, the lens I'm going through now. But when things don't go well, it's like, you know, it's like, you know, that expression, like, thanks, Captain Obvious. Like, you know, when you people give you advice and they're pointing out what's going wrong, that's not helpful, right? I mean, it's just, I just literally had this conversation with someone this morning. When people come with actionable help and advice and you don't have to take it, but it's like, all right, there's a problem. Let's solve it together. What can we do? Let's come up with a plan. Is that kind of what you felt like came out of this long therapy session? Absolutely. But it wasn't that straightforward. It took difficult conversations to get there. And I like, I remember at the end of it, just trying to celebrate our whole family for having done that because it's not easy. It's not a given. It's a choice that we all had to make to be there. You have to sacrifice a lot of your ego to make like real progress um, within this space. Everybody wants the same thing. We just don't always go about it in the best ways. And and I love what you said about like it, it sounds like you got to a place where you you saw your parents as people and maybe not as parents. And and one of the things you said that I think was really powerful, which was that that kind of disconnect um, or conflict, internal conflict that you had between the parents that you thought you wanted or had and what you were actually getting. Did I hear that right? Definitely. Definitely. That's what is so critical because we, we so many of us have that in, in, in many different aspects of life, but it's like, what was it and at when did that happen to make you almost think that the that your parents should be different would be different could be different you know is that watching friends parents was that do you have any insight to that and then we'll let your dad speak there's just so many social pressures on like every relationship there's all these like whether it's tv or movies or your friends parents and if it's something that you're left wanting for you just hold everybody else in, in this very like unrealistic plane. We all have families that we can probably think of that we would describe as like the ideal family, but you step into their lives for a couple of hours and you'll see like how, how they're just like all of us um, or just like everybody exactly. else. Um, my parents were on paper were always like, they both went to Ivy league schools. They both went to like prestigious high schools. They both, went to law school and they've had awesome jobs throughout their whole lives. And that's sort of the space that I grew up in was going to the same high schools and being around the same people, having all these conversations about like what we would accomplish and what our parents accomplished. And I, I always felt a lot of pressure to like uphold, I guess, the values and standards of my parents. 
once we were able to like see past that and just realize that like I am my own person, my sister is her own person, my brother is his own person. We are not our parents and they're just as fallible as any other human being and that we have the freedom to do the same thing. Thank you, Peter, for all of that color. It was beautifully and very, very articulately said. Craig, how does that feel listening to him? Well, I'm very proud of Peter and and, uh, all the work he put into getting where he is today and recognizing that we're all still struggling um, and new, new challenges come up and go. There, there was a moment in that family session that Peter described where, um, you know, we, we were trying to address our internal issues and, and, and help each other. At the same time, I was had been creating this role as mental health ambassador for Johnson & Johnson, and I was going around and doing the work that you and I do, Marjorie. Um, and Peter said, you know, isn't it hypocritical for our family, we're such a mess, to be out there telling other people what to do? We had a good conversation about that. and. We reflected on the, the, the people we look to for advice are often people who've lost someone to suicide and had very public trauma and, and developed foundations. And we don't often hear from families who, ha- who have luckily avoided you know, the, the, a suicide, a death by suicide, or, and struggled with that. And, and yet our experience is, is just as valid. And I think from, from that, convers- that little piece of conversation, is when Peter um, and and the rest of the family started thinking, well, maybe we have a role to play alongside some of these other uh, activists and advocates. Um, and I'm just delighted that Peter and I are able to do this uh, together. And I'm looking forward to when he becomes a licensed therapist. And he has become our own kind of internal uh, in-house therapist. Uh, he often makes the most sense of anybody. Going back to your first question, Marjorie, about what the experience was like, you know, I used to, when I started this, my public advocacy, I would say the the system is broken. And then Andy Keller uh, one day said, you know, Craig, I don't think there's really a system out there. There's a bunch of assets that you can pull together if you spend enough time, you know, and you get them lined up the right way. But to say there's a system that's going to help you. um, And so what happens is that the family, you know, has to become the, the healthcare system for their loved ones. If you're lucky where you've got enough mental capacity, healthy capacity in your family to stick with it, you can, you can find your way to somewhat effective treatment. I think, Peter, you might have gone through 12 therapists before you found the one who, the one who helped and that, that really clicked with you. And that kind of stress on a family is, is really difficult. I mean, I, I, I do think that my marriage to Peter's mother um, suffered because of our struggles trying to navigate the system and keep our, all of our heads above water and have these difficult conversations around which there's a lot of pressure and not a lot of agreement necessarily. Just to see where Peter has come and recognize that we still, you know, we're, we're never going to be out of the woods. These are lifelong. This is part of what being a human being is all about, right? Exactly. That's the key. That that's the key takeaway right there, right? This is what life is. Part of being human, right? Yeah, and the beauty that we can find in those dark times and how how you learn to rely on other people and trust other people and be able to like be vulnerable to let people help you kind of get through and then paying that forward to helping others. I mean, that's that's sort of that whole sense of purpose beauty. So 
At the family level, I'm delighted that the American Academy of Pediatrics is now recommending that you have a mental health screen every time a child interacts with the healthcare provider. I was just at the Colorado Children's Hospital yesterday, and they're doing that at every interaction, whether it's in the emergency room for a broken leg or um, you know, in, in a well-child visit, they're checking on the mental health. And then they're bringing resources, uh, which are a challenge to Marshall, but they're bringing specialists who can consult with the primary care physicians on how to handle various mental and behavioral health uh, concerns. Uh, so they're uh, starting to create that system that we all want to see, that integrated care, that coordinated care. And yeah, I, you know, in our experience, even today, it's, it's few and far between where that's happening. Um, so how do we accelerate that? Do you find both both you, Craig and Peter, are your conversations different now than they used to be? Is your relationship different? And and how? Absolutely, they're different. I think from my standpoint, I'm more receptive to my dad. And I guess anybody, I had a huge case of like people pleasing and making sure everybody believed that I was okay when I really wasn't. So when I need help, we more quickly and more openly have those types of discussions. And I think like on a lighter side, like I just, instead of like getting angry or frustrated with my dad, I just kind of like, I find it like there's, I have a sense of humor about just how people are. I just give myself and others a much longer leash, to just be themselves and accept them for who they are. And it's really helped me like accepted things in myself that used to like cause me great anxiety. What would you say, Dad? I think we're doing better. and We're always learning. There, there are some real barriers in this space. One thing we struggle with is that if somebody has a chronic mental health condition, they don't want to be known as you know the person with anxiety or the person with addiction or the person with bipolar. As a caregiver, as somebody supporting them, this is a fine line to walk because you want to be open to you know hearing what's going on with them and, and give them that, the license to talk about it, which they, people don't often have that license. But if you uh, spend too much time thinking about them, then the person feels like, you know, that you're just treating them like a patient, not like a friend or an equal or a member of the family. And that leads to uh, them not wanting to share what's going on. It's like, well, I, I want to handle this on my own and I'll choose to tell you uh, when I'm, not handling things, you know. What we see is that oftentimes that resurfaces as a crisis where, you know, we know, what we all know as a family that early intervention, early engagement on these issues is and trying to deflect the, the, the pathology um, is the best way to do it, you know. But just the dynamic of, of wanting to be a, a, your own person and, be, and not being treated as just a person who has an illness uh, forces those conversations underground. And that's not something we've solved for sure. The fact that it's so difficult to get care even today means that the person who's struggling, that there's, there's not a lot of willingness to run out and try to find new care every time something happens. You want to see if you can solve it yourself and put the genie back in the bottle and stabilize. And sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. My point is that I think we've normalized the conversation. We do a, we do a, a better job than many, many families. 
And yet it's still, you know, the internal, the, the inherent nature of this conversation makes it really difficult to have the conversation in a timely way while also enabling each of us to just to live our lives and be full human beings. Craig, I think everybody can relate to that, what you just explained. I mean, that that is another example of things that get played out all the time. I think part of the reason why that happens too is that you don't want to be stigmatized and always be talking about problems, right? It's like, so where, where, where does that land where, you know, it can be lighthearted fun, like whether it's a sports game or, you know, and then when is it like hand raising, asking for help and saying, I'm having a hard time, but I think I'm okay. Um, just FYI, you know, or to what it sounds like it's more of when it gets to a point of crisis. And I think we can all relate to that, right? I mean, that's, that's a dance. That's a delicate, a delicate dance. Peter, having gone through what you've gone through, what, uh, what advice or words of wisdom might you have for other people in the same situation or similar situations? Give yourself a break. We're all going through something difficult. And every time you make a mistake, when you like, don't give yourself the freedom to learn from that, whatever you're trying to do to get better, won't stick as much. I'll say, try to be open and honest with the people that you trust and that you love and that love you. Because when I was going through what I was going through, part of what was a huge barrier for me was just feeling like this singular mistake of the universe where like I was the only one experiencing this and I was just too weak, too unprepared to get through it. Uh, when I was able to like talk with peers who had had similar experiences, that was extremely freeing for me to know that not only was I not alone, but like people that I really respected were going through the same things. And like my going forward and talking about myself gave them the freedom to talk about themselves. The openness and then, I mean, self-reflection. It's I don't know what that looks like for everybody, but for me, it was just like understanding how I am when I'm stressed or depressed, how I can like sort of manufacture a way to get out of it, like force myself to do certain things that I really, really don't want to do. And after like a couple of days, you just that becomes like back becomes a part of your habit again. I always encourage people to make the effort before it becomes what it became for me. Like I did not have to get arrested. I did not have to get suspended from Tufts for these things to happen. They did. And that's what helped me. But I was extremely fortunate that like nothing that happened was like irreversible or something that I couldn't come back from. But that's not the case for a lot of people. And I, I always express gratitude that that's what happened for me. The power of story is, is really is so incredible, right? To be able to share your story because it, it's not only healing for us individually, but it also creates a space for people around us to also, you know, share their stories. And that's, that's the most beautiful thing. I'm always thinking about ways to like increase the destigmatization of mental health. I think storytelling is like absolutely like the forefront of that. But I often find that like a lot of people, if it doesn't touch your life, you still don't understand like the nuances of mental health and how maybe people who are suffering aren't likable or you know sympathetic because that's often the case where like we we see somebody who's suffering and we like feel sympathy and we feel bad for this person we want they're good people and they bad things are happening to them and they need help 
Um, and sometimes in, in my case, I don't think that that's always true. Like I always look back and I'm like, it's pretty clear why people didn't help me. It, is because I wasn't helping myself and I was making that extremely obvious. So why would other people waste their effort when like what I'm doing is so detrimental to like my own well-being? Understanding that and through storytelling, I believe we can achieve that. But I'm always like trying to brainstorm ways that we can make bigger dents in our society in that regard. It says your dad kind of started it. It's it's mental health is all of us. Everybody has everybody has a story. And everybody can relate either for themselves or, you know, for those, those around them. It's so critical for people like you to be telling your stories. How about you, Craig? What lessons learned do you have advice or thoughts for people going through similar things? Well, you know, the topic of the podcast is the future of mental health. And uh, from a individual and family perspective, I, I think the, the future that we are all trying to build at the family level is one where you know, we can have these conversations among ourselves, but we also get support from schools and coaches and, and in the workplace and from primary care and from law enforcement uh, and from the, you know, the, the psychiatric professions. Um, that's something that doesn't exist right now. I think it's coming into being. I think COVID has made us all more aware of the fact that we all have mental health. I think it's going to be, continue to be a difficult journey for individuals and families if we don't have this integrated as part of all these institutions and a recognition that this is just really just part of being a human being, as we said earlier. And I think that that change is, is coming. Um, there are lots more people talking about it. There are a lot of great innovations happening at all levels. I hope we can pick up the pace of change. And I think a little militancy from our advocacy community is, is warranted because we're not getting what we need now and people are dying by suicide and record numbers and, and deaths of despair. So I, I'm, I'm encouraging a little more energy in this space. You know, I, one of my colleagues at J&J uh, went to head up the American Cancer Society. And the cancer community uh, is, you know, when they go to Congress, they get what they want because every member of Congress knows they will pay a penalty at the, at the voting booth if they don't come through. But the mental health community simply doesn't get that respect. And, and it's partly because the American Cancer Society has a billion-dollar budget every year. And our leading uh, advocacy groups are, are, have budgets in sort of the 10 to $20 million a year. And they're fragmented. So, you know, from a, where I look as an individual advocate and as a family advocate, I, I think we need to come together and try to uh, increase our power uh, and not be fragmented the way we have been and continue to be. And part of that fragmentation is because of the nature of this illness. As we've discussed, it's very hard to be open about this over a long period of time. And um, you, know, you get exhausted and, and you, know, you want to move on to other things like cancer that are easier to talk about. Before we kind of wrap up, are there any sort of positive things that you can share in the midst of all the hard stuff? I'd love to hear some of the good that that comes from the hard work as a outcome of it. Some things come to mind. I would say I have like the best relationships with the friends that I have now. Maybe like since like kindergarten, if you will, like those types of friendships where you know, in college it was always like the people I was like partying with or 
only people that I could like have fun and laugh with. But now I have friends who we talk about what's actually going on in our lives and we know what's happening and we ask each other questions and check in. And I just genuinely feel super loved and I feel the love that I have for the people around me. It's really makes me feel better every day. And I don't think I would be there without having gone through what I went through. Just hopefulness about life. And I think I mentioned this before, but like having a sense of purpose was always really important to me. And going through the difficult times allowed me to like almost take a step back from like the pressures of life that, you know, cloud our judgment and make us just see what's right in front of us. I was able to have the perspective to see what I wanted to do in like five years and 10 years and then be able to figure out how to get to those things. That was never something that I had the time for because I was so like wrapped up in my anxiety and like just trying to get through every day where I just didn't have the capacity to do those things. Um, And then like even going to things that like I love, I love playing soccer. It's like one of my favorite things to do just in terms of like the community and like the physical exertion and the accomplishment, everything like that. I have been playing like the most fun, free soccer of my life. And it's just like so awesome to be able to experience these things. Like I, I try to express gratitude as much as I can. I probably don't do it enough, but those are some things that I'm extremely grateful for. Craig, how about, lastly turning it to you how has this affected you as the ambassador for the work you're doing or you know we go through really really hard times and at the end of them sometimes we we come out almost always i'd say we come out of it and we look back and we we can find some silver linings and things how would you say that this experience has helped you today i am really encouraged by the fact that more and more people from all walks of life are talking about this and uh, Marjorie, you know as well as we do that when you tell your story, people line up to, to talk about their story and, and you know, get advice from you. So I think normalizing the conversation is happening across all elements of our society, which is great. And when I think about hope, I, I think about when I first started this, the professional side of my journey, which you know, was not the topic today. But I, I met with Tom Inso, who at the time was the head of the National Institute of Mental Health. And I'll never forget, he said, you know, Craig, it's true. We have a lot more to do. We have a lot more that we don't know. And we need to work on that. But it's also true that we don't do enough with what we already know works. We do have, we do have effective uh, treatments for many of these illnesses, especially if we get them early. Uh, and, and as you know, most of them start in, in adolescence and youth. And um, our family has had enough time now to figure out how to bring those current knowledge to bear and to help us. And so I'm hopeful that working together, we can take what we already know and get it out to more people. And I think that's what PsychHub is doing in a lot of important ways. Um, but, but that gives me hope that we don't have to wait forever for some you know, new digital therapeutic or some new you know, pharmaceutical or some new to try to transform this space. There's a lot we can get done now. And take care of ourselves. And I think, you know, Peter is, is more eloquent than I am talking about how he does that in, in his own personal life. And it's been wonderful to watch that happen. How about you in your personal life, whether with the kids or in your relationships, has it changed 
I come from a family that has a lot of depression and anxiety, I think, as part of our DNA. And when I was in college, I had a couple of depressive episodes. And uh, this was now quite a long time ago, but we had a, a peer-to-peer, it was called peer-to-peer counseling, a peer-to-peer support group. And I signed up to be trained. And essentially what I got was mental health first aid training and sort of cognitive behavioral therapy tricks and tips that I, I used to help support my peers. But it, it also gave me a way to talk about and think about my own brain health. And it's hard to prove a negative, but I think that those tools have been useful to me throughout my life. And so I did not continue down the path of, you know, increasingly entrenched depression. I was able to kind of create some stability. That's what's allowed me to weather these storms and to, you know, take advantage, lean into the challenge of mental health and create a career around that with a great company. And I continue to, you know, focus on my well-being, you know, the, the old adage, put the mask on yourself first before you try to put the mask on somebody else. I work out every day. I make sure to take time for mental health breaks. Um, I try to do things that are enjoyable and pleasurable in order to, you know, fill the, fill the tank. Sounds like Peter is, is doing that as well, which I think is a critical part of mental well-being. That is really great. And I, I appreciate so much both of you for coming on here and sharing your your vulnerability and your story. And, you know, just as we talked about by you sharing how, what it has like been for you, you make it okay for other people to share and to know that they're not alone and that it takes a lot of courage. And I would say my fearless business partner, Patrick Kennedy knows it better than anyone, just always leading by, by who our authentic selves are and creating spaces for other people to be their authentic self too. And I'm optimistic for our future when I see fathers and sons like the two of you. Um, totally inspired by you, Peter. We need a lot of people in the field. And I just want to thank both of you for the great work that you do. And I'm, I have a feeling that we're just going to continue hearing from you as, as life goes on. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Marge. And thank you for all that PsychHub and you and Patrick are doing. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. And giving us this opportunity. This was really awesome. As always, thank you for listening to our podcast. If you enjoyed the show, drop us a review. If you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast for the latest episode. For the latest insights, check us out at psychhub.com. <laughs>